This podcast is brought to you by Central, helping schools work smart. I'm Colin Klupik, and you're listening to Central Station. The discussion around rote learning, doing repetitive exercises, or what some people might call block practice, is always happening somewhere in the world of education, and it's often hotly debated. There are those who see enormous benefit in repeating exercises or tasks to build memory capacity and to generate capabilities which then require very little effort. Then there are the people who like to think about additional ways of learning complex concepts through what is known as interleaving. My guest today is Richard Andrew. He's a former maths teacher and now PD presenter and spends a lot of his time thinking about how to make maths teaching more engaging for students and their teachers. And interleaving is something that he's been doing a lot of work on in the articles he writes and the courses he runs for teachers. He's been on the show several times before and it's always fun to talk to Richard about maths because he's clearly so enthusiastic about making it relevant and meaningful for students. For Richard, it's not an either-or when it comes to block practice versus interleaving. But to get things started, I asked him to clarify exactly what is meant by block practice. This seems to be one of these longer ongoing conversations, which is one of the reasons why I really like talking to you about this, because there's always something new to learn. And and now we're, now we're talking about block practice and interleaving. In other words... Uh, repetitive kind of work and something else which we'll explore. What, what exactly is block practice? What are you talking about? Well, let's say that you're my teacher, math teacher, so I'm a student, and uh, we just started some sort of a unit, and then you present the first procedure that you want to teach us, and so I'll write down the notes, and then you give me one question to do 10 times. It's the same question but with different numbers in it. So I and that's the block practice. So I'm working through that series of questions, which is drilling that one procedure, and then you stop the class. Say right, everyone, let, we're going to move on to the next procedure, and then you'll you'll uh, teach that one. Maybe we copy that down. We do another set of block practice, which is basically the same question ten times or five times, whatever. Same question with different numbers. So that's the block practice, and then you move through, and then eventually towards the end of the unit, you'll everyone does the mixed questions. But if I'm like most students, by the end, I'll have no idea really what we've done. I won't have connected the procedures together. So there'll be a level of confusion. And plus, um, I'm sort of not necessarily particularly motivated by what's going on. <laughs> I can tell in the way that you've described it that it's, it doesn't really push, <laughs> I, push your I buttons. I fell asleep there, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Look, I, yeah it's one of the... the one of the few times I've asked the guests to describe something and they've nearly fallen asleep whilst they're doing it. It sounds like a fairly typical sort of experience. If I think back to my um, maths classroom experience, that doesn't sound too unusual. Was it, was it like that way for you as well, as in going back all those years, back to your schooling? Well, it was. And that was certainly the way I was teaching maths in the beginning. And I couldn't work out, you know, because I, 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 I liked maths. I liked teaching maths. And I couldn't work out why... I was faced by this sea of the sea of bored kids with light that had drained from their eyes, and <laughs> you know, no, and it really frustrated me. And I, I thought, this is this. I've got to find another way. This is not working. So the thing that um, I find so interesting about this this concept of block practice is that it seems to just be the natural thing that we do. So I was in a classroom the other day observing math students, 
and mm-hmm. uh, the, the teacher had given them some maths online stuff. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is interesting because I knew we were going to have this discussion on block practice. Right. So I sort of um, just observed the, the questions that, uh, that the software was throwing up. And I thought, this looks very much like block practice. Why is block practice so easy to do and why do we gravitate towards it? Well, I think we gravitate towards it because on the surface, it's the intuitive thing to do. If we're teaching something new, we want to make it easy for the kids, so we break it down. And if you look at the sporting analogy, I used to teach PE as well. If you're teaching the tennis serve, you're not going to teach the whole thing because there's several complicated components. So you might teach, you know, the the part of the swing from the where the racket's down the middle of your back to when the racket's extended over your head, uh, and then you might to groove that thing, and then you might do the swing from the where the racket's in front and that whole thing together, and then you might do the follow-through as well, and then you, you practice the toss 100 times, and then you start putting it together. So each part is taught separately, but although the sporting analogy is not quite like maths block practice because in the sporting analogy, you're, you're building the skill. You're doing part and then adding that to the previous part, whereas in block practice in maths, <clears throat> it's really here's one procedure and here's a seemingly unconnected procedure. The teacher sees it's connected, but the student often doesn't. And so each thing that is done in isolation and then somehow magically the kids are meant to put it all together at the end. Um, so I think it's an, it, but it makes sense to make it easy. You know, let's make this easy. So we'll just do, we'll just not overtax the kids. We'll just let them do one thing at a time. You know, I imagine 300 years ago when the industrial revolution started and the bosses realized we needed a workforce that could actually do some stuff with numbers. So we need to make an education system. I think then that they're not thinking about turning kids into um, you know, complex mass problem solvers. I think they're looking at a workforce. And the obvious way to do that would be through drilling certain procedures that they would have need, needed in the workforce. That's I'm guessing, but I would imagine way back then that's, that seemed to make sense and we've been doing it ever since. So it's, it's, so it's, just, a, uh, it's just an intuitive kind of automatic thing to do. Well, it makes sense on the surface. You know, if you're if you're teaching fractions, now fractions are not that difficult. But if you look at all the different procedures, it, it's really complicated. Now, you would never, you would never throw that whole thing at kids and get them to to do, you know, be operating with you know, division of fractions and multiplication and addition and subtraction and mixed denominators and all sorts of things all at once in a procedural way. You know, you wouldn't get them to have to use a dozen different procedures in the same block straight up because it would be too difficult, right? That, so it, it makes sense. Let's just do one at a time, one at a time. But if it's if it's not taught from a, a conceptual understanding point of view, then the kids get really confused. And, and fractions and decimals percentages are the – is one area where kids really crash and burn and it's not that difficult. So is there some benefit or no benefit? Well, there's definitely benefit. Um, so it's not, we're not saying never use block practice. But what I am saying is that let's try and avoid um, putting kids to sleep. Let's, 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 tr- <laughs> let's try to avoid turning them off and having them confused or just bored. Um, let's avoid having them work in a way where they, all they have to do is follow something that's written on the board and copy that down with a different question. Like just, so they're not really thinking, they're just copying, copying and 
changing the numbers. And that's that that's as boring. It's incredibly boring. Um, so let's avoid that. But when we're first teaching something, maybe students are required to do a couple of um, you know two or three questions just to just to groove it, and then they go into something else, which we'll talk about soon. So it's not that block practice has no place. Um, in fact, I, I wrote an article called "Why We Need to Use Less Block Practice and More Interleaving When Teaching Maths," and, and it quotes a um, uh, a woman called Agardal and her two colleagues who wrote this fantastic guide. It's linked into the uh, in, linked into my article. Um, so they've got this guide about how to present maths, how much block practice to use, and how much interleaving to use. But they suggest this really surprised me because I. I'm not the researcher, but I totally disagree disagree with this. That, they're suggesting two thirds block practice and one third something else, and I just think that's because if I think if if it's two thirds block practice, I still think we hit this problem of students just being bored. So I think the measure is let's just be aware of where the kids are starting to like fall asleep or gla- eyes glaze over. And let's avoid that, but let's give them some block practice so as they get some runs on the board. And some kids won't really need any, and some kids will need more. So you need to sort of just um, work it out depending on what the students need. So it's not, so a, bl- yeah, not a blanket solution in that sense. We can't it's not just, a blanket. No, no. Can't just universally apply it. No. Well, we'll, we'll I'll get to some some explanations or some examples later, which should make sense. But um, so it's not that all black block practices is. Uh, is, is bad. Uh, that's a bad, it's not a very good word. I know. I just, but when it's overused, it's, uh, um, it's not good. <laughs> now I did, I did read that article that you wrote and in that article, you also referenced Bloom's taxonomy and uh, that, that notion of, uh, doing things with little cognitive effort. And, and I wondered, well, is, isn't that potentially a really good thing if I can do a whole, raft of mathematics with very little cognitive effort an example is okay i'm an adult and i reckon i've got a reasonably good grasp of maths for for you know for the average person mm-hmm. and times tables for me like my tens time 10 times tables require zero cognitive effort right is it fair that to say then that if i've got um, a whole bunch of content pretty well sorted out that requires very little cognitive effort, I've then got more cognitive reserve left for the harder stuff. Yeah, but I think there's two there's two things going on here. So where where it becomes problematic for students is if they don't know their times tables and they're not very proficient with numbers, then when they're presented with something that's slightly harder, most of their processing is in trying to work out, oh, what's six sevens again? And what do I do? You know, the simple stuff that should be automatic. So therefore, they don't have the reserve to actually apply to the problem-solving aspect. So and it, and so, yes, they need to have um, a certain amount of mathematical knowledge that's on recall. The question then is, what's the best way to to approach that? Right. And so, what that article was suggesting, and what the the researchers are saying, is that we need to. Um, we need to have students involved in activities where they are understanding what they're doing and, and activities that require them to use their own thinking. To, so, because it's through that process 
through using their own inquiry, through thinking things through, having a sense that, oh, I'm actually using my own reasoning here. Uh, and this might be before they see the procedure and, and they're collaborating with other students. That's the way connections are made. The connections aren't made through block practice and the teacher explaining why this procedure is linked to that procedure. And I think a lot of teachers think that they're doing a really good job of explaining, understanding or teaching for understanding by verbally explaining how this is connected to that and how that's connected to something else. And that's important, but that's not really where the aha moments happen for kids. The aha moments or the points of understanding occur, I think, when they're actually getting their hands dirty, thinking and working stuff through and collaborating with their fellow kids and being asked questions and so on. Mm. So, and, autom- and then, yeah, so automatic recall is still a, a fundamental yeah. – Absolutely, fundamental skill that is that is required. So, yeah. so if we use if we use block practice to nail down some fundamentals, yes, and then we keep going down that path. Do we hit a kind of a like a, a point of diminishing returns, or do we actually sort of tip over the horizon and say, actually, now this block practice technique is is harming me? It's actually it's actually causing a deficit in my capabilities of <coughs> of being able to move forward. Absolutely, it hits a tipping point. I, I was listening to. Um, have you heard of Alfie Cohn? No. Oh, okay. I don't know why I keep hearing coming across him, but I've read quite a bit. He's an American um, writer and thinker. Um, I like it. I like him because when he sees something's broken, he doesn't he doesn't beat around the bush. You know, he <laughs> pulls no punches. And I was listening to a, a, an audio file of a keynote that he delivered, and he's basically saying that any teaching of procedures, period, is damaging to kids. Any? Any, any at all? Any at all. And he was railing about this, and I thought, whoa. That's... Uh, only with maths? No, yeah, uh, he, was about, he, he, was, he was talking about the broken American maths education right, okay. system, right? Yep. And I'm thinking about that. Now, I don't, I don't sort of buy that but when i think about it i think there's a couple of camps if, if you're in the camp that believes like let's say we, we want change we want to move away from what we've got but if we believe that there are certain there's some some of the content that we teach is actually important and it is important that we we assess we assess this and it needs to be taught somewhat traditionally but having kids thinking through if if, if some of that content needs to be taught then we need procedures and so my point would be let's let's use minimum block practice and the next thing we're going to talk about you now the interleaving. But if you're in the other another camp and there's another camp that says, well, no, um, you know, I think all of mathematics, what we should have is 100% students being mathematicians, you know, doing the inquiry, doing the looking for patterns, where that's the entire program. If that's what you believe, then there's a case for saying that we, we shouldn't be teaching procedures. I, I work with teachers who exist within a conventional curriculum setup, and so my what I'm trying to do is to help them to teach in that conventional setting, but in a way that has kids thinking, understanding what they're doing. Uh, and so, yes, I'm saying that procedures are necessary to teach, but let's not bore the pants off kids. <laughs> well, you've just mentioned something really interesting that I just picked up on. You just mentioned the idea of uh, helping students become mathematicians rather than or the, or thinking about it in the concept from or from the perspective of students being mathematicians rather than you being the teacher and teaching them maths. Yeah. Can can, yes. you, can you elaborate on that? <laughs> well, 
you know, you could argue, look, if okay, let's let's be honest here. When when I was starting off teaching, I was the block practice teacher. I was the it was all about teaching the procedures, right? And that's what I did. And I was told I was doing well, but I knew I wasn't um, because I could see the sea of despair and in, in, in the faces of my kids, who I liked, by the way, you know. But I could see the report, the report diminishing. <laughs> it's a bit, it's a bit of a dep- depressing scene, and it frustrated the heck out of me, which is why I, I changed. But if I if I look at back at what I was doing, I don't think I was delivering mathematics lessons. Really, I was delivering procedures lessons. So kids weren't going to maths class; they were going to procedures class because that's uh, what I was teaching. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah, teaching yeah. procedures, and I was young, and no one had really shown me any, any other way. But really, ultimately, if you think of what does a mathematician do, a mathematician makes conjectures, checks the data, looks for patterns, suggests stuff, you know, works stuff out, investigates. <laughs> like that's Now, we, we can do that. We can have kids doing that. And I try and help teachers do that within a conventional setting. And there's, there's you know, other, other way, you know the, the whole um, problem-based learning, I think, is based on this idea. So, so you know, you could argue that the current – most of the current maths curriculums aren't really helping t- kids become mathematicians. They're really showing them how to teach the maths that the university people believe they should know at, at the year 12 level so they can get university entrance. I'm very glad you made that distinction about when you said, when you think about what mathematicians do. Because I've often, well, yeah. won- I've often wondered what do mathematicians do? Well, I don't know because I'm not a mathematician. But, <laughs> That's but- a good question to ask though. But it is a good question to ask, and um, a, a, a true mathematician, in my view, would would be one who looks at looks at a a system and and you know solves a problem within that system. looks looks for the patterns. Coming up, we shift the conversation to interleaving, and how that makes a difference to teaching maths and how a student learns about maths. Richard explains the theory behind it and gives practical tips on how to integrate it into your maths classroom. More on that in a moment. And if you'd like to hear another inspired maths teacher describe how he engages students with really complex maths, have a listen to my conversation with Steve Howard. He really knows how to make complex concepts easy to listen to and to talk about. And uh, let's say a topic, mathematical induction. It doesn't matter because some of your readers or listeners won't uh, know about it. But <laughs> Of course, well, everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Let me, let, <laughs> let me just be clear on that. Oh, we all know what you mean, of course. Yes. Induction, yeah, I get that. <laughs> and, and the important thing is delving through and finding every... And you can find that episode by subscribing to Central Station on your favourite podcast app and searching for Steve Howard. So interleaving, what, how does interleaving change right. the direction of this discussion? Okay. So now it, it's interesting because when I read about interleaving, I realized that I'd been onto this since the mid-90s. I, I, had, I intuitively knew this was the way to go, but I never knew it was uh, a thing. So it helps me, <clears throat> it helps me now to explain, um, explain this kind of area uh, more clearly. Uh, so I'm quite kind of excited about the fact that someone has put a name to it. Um, So look, I need to say though, in my view, interleaving is not the answer because interleaving is still about teaching procedures. And if all we're doing is teaching procedures, then we're we're teaching procedures class, not maths class. 
So, so what what I th- interleaving is exciting to me because it's it's an answer to the perils of too much block practice. So all interleaving is is a set of problems whereby, like let's say you're the teacher, I'm the student, you have presented maths, uh, a, a unit of maths or a part of a unit of maths a little bit differently to how you did before with it where you're just showing one procedure. I've got a better conceptual understanding of what's going on and then you, you've set me to task to work through a series of problems. But I can't use the same procedure from problem one to problem two to problem three. They all are on the, they're all of a similar kind of uh, mathematics, but I have to use my thinking and I have to apply things differently and maybe do some problem solving and work out some ways myself because each question requires a slightly different approach. So what it does, it immediately raises on Bloom's taxonomy, it raises the level of cognition. So it's harder. It's more a more difficult thing to do. So intuitively you think, well, you wouldn't do that because the kids have just, you know, at the start of the unit, you, why would you do that? But you do that because you still make it doable, but it's so much more interesting for the kids because they are thinking that using there's a sense of I'm using my own brain here. This this math looks a bit more difficult, but I'm actually thinking this through. I'm making my own decisions. I'm I'm trying mm. this. I'm trying that. And and therefore there's a there's a, a ten times more things I can talk about or c- collaborate about with my neighbours. So you're just talking about mixing up the questions. So if I think about the word interleaving, I think about things woven in amongst each other. Are we just talking about mixing different well, if, types of procedures amongst one another? If you can put the link to my article, and then in that article there's a link to the, the guide, there's some examples there of what's block practice and what's interleaving. Yes, well, we'll certainly <laughs> do that, and listeners can check out those links in the uh, description of the episode. <laughs> can, I, can I go through uh, an example that I've got on a free tutorial? Because I think this is really in line with... Um, this whole topic. Yes, you can. A free tutorial and a free plan. <clears throat> and what is it? Yes, correct. So, <laughs> but what the, what this tutorial is um, is it it's it's a tutorial based on an approach for right angle trigonometry. So, auto, automatically, a lot of math teachers are thinking, "Well, I don't need to do a tutorial on right angle trig because I've taught it a hundred times." But that's not the point. That it's. It's, right angle trig is just used as an example of how to how to um, approach um, a topic using something that has the kids thinking things through, understanding what's going on, and working through some interleaved questions, which also saves time. All right. So traditional, I, I need to compare this to a traditional way that trig is taught. So you know, if I'm <clears throat> if I'm teaching this, I'll do a bit of an introduction, and then I'm. Um, for those who can't remember, we're talking about right angle triangles, and so you, there's three ratios. So you're looking at uh, finding the length of an unknown side if you if you know one other side and the angle, and there's three ways that can happen. So I might start off with the, with the sine ratio, so so that the kids are spending doing ten questions using the sine ratio to work out an unknown length of a side, and then we move to the second ratio. Maybe that's cosine. Which is a slightly different arrangement of of, of um, so it's the uh, a different arrangement of length side lengths and angles. Um, but again, we do block block practice with that, and then we do the same with the tangent. And by this time, we're maybe two to three lessons into the unit. But kids, what typically happens is kids aren't connecting the dots. And then we've got to do the same thing with finding the unknown angle, right? I don't want to bore you with the details, but 
we're, we're talking about a fair bit of chunk of time here. And so when so we're now maybe five or six lessons into the unit, and then we hit the mixed questions, and the kids have <laughs> this happened to me so many times. The, most kids are not happy. The, the top <laughs> kids can cope with it, but but there's a lot of kids in the middle who could cope with this, who just think this is a waste of time. From a teacher's perspective, like my my rapport is going down. I'm thinking the next unit I use has got to be a really good one because I need to get these kids back on the same team. You know, it's just it's a nightmare. So that's the a, a typical way of approaching trig. And then one time I just thought this has got to be a better way. So the an approach that uses a much more conceptual approach and uses interleaving is, and this is what the tutorial goes through. So we'd start off with an introduction, which shows how trigonometry actually works. And this uses a, a really good Georgia profile and a slightly different pedagogy, which means that, and so kids can go, oh, okay, I can, I can actually see this whole thing here. And the, and the first thing they then do is, okay, I wanna, we're going to present you a triangle and you need to work out whether this is a sine situation or a cosine situation or a tan situation. So you're putting right? them through a, and a thinking process before you're putting them through the yes, drilling process. absolutely. Absolutely. This is a much harder thing to do on the surface, but it actually makes it more doable because it's not boring. So is that a conversation? Is that, is that a talking exercise? As in when you, it's a talking when, exercise and a demonstration exercise. There's also a file in, in the tutorial. You get a file which actually helps with this. It's actually a PowerPoint with all those different situations and you can flash it up and the kids go, oh, that's a sign. And oh, that's a cosine, right? So it can actually help that, that process. Then you, you show them, okay, so here's, here's, a, here's a triangle. What what is it? Oh, that's a cosine situation. Okay, so now this is how this is how we're going to find the length of this unknown side. So we write down the trigonometry sentence. So it's you know um, uh, adjacent over hypotenuse. You know, I won't bore you with the details, but so you write down the trig sentence and work that through. So that's that's a procedural teaching of that that you go through, right? And and so and we might do a couple of those. So that's this is the block practice, but mm -hmm. it, it's po possibly done for me at the front. So, okay, let's do this one. Let's do this one. So you get the gist here. So what we just, you can see what the, you can see what, whether it's sine, cos, or tan, and you can see the, 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 the trigonometry sentence is quite simple, and we just follow that through. That's, that's what we're going to do. Then they go into the interleaved worksheet series, created by yours truly, and this works a treat, right? So that it's different triangles on, on a sheet of paper, and they, and they answer them on the paper. So they look at the first one oh that's cosine okay what's this trigonometry sentence right cosine of the angle equals blah 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 and they work it through got an answer to the next one what's this one oh so can you help me with this you know oh that's tangent oh, okay and away they go and away they go so much more difficult on the surface than what traditionally happens where they're only just following the one thing off the board right like just doing 10 of 10 sign but what's happening is the kids are thinking much more. They're actually doing they're, – they're invested in this process and they're making decisions and they're working together. But what happens is uh, – so once they get through that worksheet series, and this is very traditional, right? We're not, we're not measuring heights of trees outside, although you can do that as well if you want. We're just really getting them into the grunt of, of trigonometry and understanding what's happening. So the point in the unit where they go to the textbook or whatever you use with the mixed questions, right? With you know, and diagrams of heights of sheds and all that sort of stuff. That normally takes six or seven lessons, and the kids are just like about to 
rebel and <laughs> because they're just tired of doing the same thing over and over. Create mutiny. <laughs> that happens. That happens between lessons two and three. So do the maths. We're saving two, three, four lessons of a unit through this process. And mm. why does that happen? Because the kids are they're not thinking about following the procedure from the board. They're thinking trigonometrically. That that they're making the decisions. They're, oh, this is sine, this is cosine, and the rest is quite simple. And then in terms in terms of the angle, like finding the angles, which is a whole other sort of lesson. What I don't even talk about that. That's implanted in halfway down page two. So the kid hits this question. They go, Mister Andrew, there's, there's one there's one here without there's no angle. Like how do I find that? Now the kid who hits there first—that's the Johnny who's you know always the fastest. So he he's got more, more resilience. So it's like, oh come on, Johnny, you work that out. That's all right. Really, what I'm doing is waiting for two or three others to hit that spot. Yeah. And it's good good for Johnny to grapple with that for a while anyway, because you know. And so once you've got a few kids there, okay, let me show you how this works. It takes a minute. It's not, and but the fact that they put their hand up saying, "Mr. Andrew, what do we do here?" means we've create, created a need for them to learn the next thing. So it's very different to me stopping the class and saying, right, now, everyone, let me teach you how to find the angle. And so do you think that is the part that they enjoy, the, the need part? Creating, that- a need, creating a need to learn is really important, and, and there's ways you can do that. I, I run a course where I talk about this, um, or a couple of courses, because, uh, because you can engineer that into – you know, given that kids don't have a choice about doing maths, right? I mean, the ultimate need is one of those schools where kids can create their own journey and they can say, "Hey, I want to learn how to pull a car engine apart or whatever." That's that's a need coming from a genuine, "Hey, this is what I want to do." But when it, within a context where kids don't have any choice whether they're in the room or not, they're in the room. Mm. You can still engineer these. You can still engineer a. Um, a unit of work and embed the stuff in there where the kids are putting their hands up. Oh, Mr. Andrew, look, I'm stuck here, you know. But you've the reason they're stuck is because that's deliberate. You've actually engineered that in the in the worksheet or whatever. So, so why, yes, is it, why is it hard, why is it hard to remember this though? So, and, and I guess this is related to my earlier question: Why is block practice so easy to do? Why is it harder to remember this process? Is it is it is it the same as the earlier reason, but just from a different perspective? Well, I think a lot of people. Don't know this is the option. Oh, you, what? What that interleaving is actually an option. So we're talking, yeah, a, a purely a, a situation of awareness. Yeah, I think partly. Yeah, mostly it's a, a situation of awareness. I mean, I I don't know why I intu- intuitively knew it was the way to go. I, for some reason, for twenty thirty years, I've been thinking along this conceptual path, and like, what is it that allows concepts to be understood and and I just naturally gravitated towards this as many other people probably did as well but but if you're you know I think a lot of people just really haven't had the time to think about it um, and hopefully by listening to this or reading an article on it or whatever they'll go oh, okay that makes sense I can I can do that you know so is the I problem say, is the problem by and large also due to the fact that maybe textbooks are written procedurally oh well <laughs> yeah that is a big problem. Can, so, so can you get better textbooks than others? So for example, um, recently in uh, some tertiary work that I did, I uh, was presented with an accounting textbook. Right. And uh, coming back to your theme of falling asleep, I thought, oh my goodness, I, I wonder how I'm going to survive this textbook because uh, 
well, it's accounting and I had this preconceived notion that I was going to find this rather tedious. However, looking back, that was the best textbook I have ever, ever used because of the way the information was presented and uh, the way the exercises, you know, the scenarios, the examples were presented to me. And I thought, wow, I didn't realize that it could be like this. And then I suddenly turned around and thought, you know what, I think I'm actually interested in accounting, which was, which for me was uh, quite a surprise. Was it presented in a way that wasn't block practice? Uh, Look, I couldn't tell you off, off, uh, off the top of my head, but there was something about it that made it, I don't know. There was something about it that made it interesting because, like I said, like yeah. I, I'm no, I, I, I'm no stranger to mathematical thinking. I'm not a mathematician. I'm not a maths teacher, but I don't mind thinking mathematically. I'm a, you know, a, yeah. a, a, formerly a, a technology te- teacher where we deal with mathematical principles all the time, but yep. dealing with mathematical principles in a technology workshop is very different to being an accountant or thinking yep. about accounting principles. But yes. there is still maths involved. Yes. But there was something about yes. the way that the book was presented where I thought, you know what, these people have actually yeah. really thought this through. So could yeah. could maths textbooks go through some kind of uh, awakening where we say, look, do you know what, I think we need to freshen well, all these things up? Absolutely. And, and look, I think they have evolved. Um, when I was in the game of choosing textbooks for, for um, students, like for the school, I gravitated towards a certain textbook. I didn't quite know, couldn't put my finger on why. But if I was to look at it now, I would say it's because it's less, it's still got a lot of block practice in there, but it's it's got lots more than block practice. I wouldn't know, I wouldn't say it's necessarily completely interleaved. But yeah, they could could very easily um, uh, in, interleave questions. But it does, see, it requires a different pedagogy. You, you still need to you need to present maths in a way that the kids like if i if i taught if i taught that trigonometry approach but with a with a traditional intro it wouldn't work mm. you've got to have you've got to you i know that that interleaving series is coming up so i know the kids have to really understand what this trigonometry thing is and what the difference between sine cos and tan ratios are and be able to spot the triangles and all that sort of stuff but that's what they like my, typically what would happen I, I would have kids uh, like intermediate type classes who tr- i knew traditionally this is this is going to be a nightmare like these kids are going to not like this trigonometry they're not going to do well they would go through this approach and come out and say, oh, Mr. Andrew, that, that maths, it seemed, it seemed harder. Like that's harder maths. But I, I did really well. Mm. I, I coped with that, didn't we? We did all right, didn't we? You know, And they did. Um, mind you, I had primed them up that this is, this is a more – because it is a, a more difficult-looking topic because trigonometry is often, for those kids, it is the first topic that is, ooh, this, this is kind of abstract maths. This, yeah, is, sure. this is harder maths. So it definitely – makes it easier for those sorts of kids. So let's say I'm a math teacher. I've got a textbook that has been given to me. It's been, yeah. the, someone's decided that this is the text that we will yeah. use. I have very little flexibility. Uh, but, uh, you know, the conversation that, that I'm listening to now resonates and I want to make a change. What are your top tips for just, you know, like a complete turnaround as in I want to make a change today? How do you start? Well, when I was teaching the classroom, I always used textbooks, but I also had a lot of worksheets that I'd created myself. Now, if I look back on those, I think a lot of those had interleaving in them. But so you're going to have to create some of your own stuff. But you can do. I mean, you, 
you can do some hand, you can get away with handwritten photocopied things to start off with. <laughs> oh, wait, a typing them out. Wait, wait, wait a second. Handwritten photocopied worksheets. This isn't sounding particularly <laughs> well, innovative. I would still say it's better if you're pressed for time, right? If you don't have the time to, like, you know, that's, and then test it out with that and then have them typed up later or go straight to typing them out. But what I'm well, saying I must is I was, sorry, I was being easily. I was being a little facetious there because I'm actually a big yeah. believer in quickly writing something out on paper. I, in fact, I think there's something very special about doing that because the innovation is not in the, uh, it's not in the computer yeah. or the pencil or the paper. It's in the thinking that's behind changing your work practices. Well, you could also do things like, you know, you do a little bit of block practice with, a, with say, the first four pr procedures. Okay, kids, I want everyone to make up their own set of five questions, but they all need to be kind of – you could talk about what interleaving is. Co-construction so of knowledge. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. And so the kids can create their own, own uh, questions. Then you quickly photocopy some of them, spread them around so they're doing each other's questions. And, of course, they have to do their own solutions. That's an awesome That's, idea. It's an awesome idea. And it's so simple. And it doesn't actually take any prep. You just have to run after the photocopy, but um, <laughs> but you know, but so you can you can teach you can teach your your, your unit, or the start you introduce the unit, sorry, and then have some of these worksheets that are interleaved, and then you put them plug them back into the text later on. So you could just mix it up. So I think I know a lot of teachers go, well, I don't have the interleaved sheet, so I can't do it. But I mean. All the time, any time I've taught, I've always had a mixture of text work and, and worksheets which are, are more conceptually based and, and are more interleaved. So it's quite doable. So your message is it starts with you and you can and you don't need – And you can. Yeah, and you don't need more the, expensive texts or you don't need to go and ask someone a question. You can just walk in and have this idea and say, okay, kids uh, – Let's write down some questions. Let's co-construct some knowledge. Let's share them around. How about this one? Here's one I, you could say, well, here's one I prepared earlier, which is really one you prepared about five seconds earlier. But it's, it's the sort of thing where you don't actually have to have an enormous program of pre-preparation. You can just, you can just mm. move straight into it. That's, that's what I'm hearing. Well, I think, yes, I, I do believe that. But also you need to know your audience. So, so I would... I would um, I would have some block practice in the in the beginning, but maybe that can be just done from the board. You know, you can put a couple of questions up and have people mm. do that. You know, and then if you've got your prepared interleaved questions coming up, mm. but then you want to watch for those kids who are not not coping. Now, if if a student's not coping with the interleave because it's a bit too hard for them, then put some more questions up on the board. So workshop it, but because um, you know, like if if. Well, my mantra would be sort of more one one third block practice, two thirds interleave uh, max. You know, but that's not what the researchers are saying. I'm not quite sure how they came across two thirds block practice. But I, I, you know, with some units and some students, you probably don't need it much. You probably almost don't need any block practice at all. Can we drop? Can, can we divide it into quarters? <laughs> <laughs> like one one quarter <clears throat> block practice, but uh, two. See, you know, two quarters. Uh, interleaved and one quarter deep <laughs> mathematical thinking. Well, you could do whatever you like. I I think <laughs> I think it's dangerous even to talk about that because I, I can imagine. Okay, so I'm I'm going to have two thirds of every every unit's going to start off with block practice, and and then we're going to do some interleaving after that. Well, let's look for the lights, the the candles going out behind their eyes. You know, like at what point do they start falling asleep? 
because we want to, that's what we want to avoid. And that, to me, that's the point of the interleaving is to keep them alive, to keep them thinking, to which helps them to understand. So I think just be aware that we want to avoid that and interleaving. If we're teaching procedures, is is one part of the answer. But ultimately, we need to be teaching, you know, allowing them to get their hands dirty, understand what's going on conceptually, um, have some, you know, inquiry stuff going on, and then maybe, you know, then get to the point of learning the procedure after they've been doing the maths that that's based on. So they go, oh, this makes sense because this is kind of what we've been doing rather than the procedure first and then the practice. Well, So, look, it's a big <laughs> argument. It's a big discussion, I know. Well, Richard, do, it's uh, do one of my courses and it'll, it'll make sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, despite the fact that it could be a complex uh, concept, it's always so very entertaining to talk with you about these things, Richard. And uh, what's well, fun? Yeah, and <laughs> it, it is a lot of fun. And uh, thanks so much again for your time. And uh, I'm sure we'll pick Pleasure. this up. I'm sure we'll pick this up again soon in another conversation. Awesome. Thanks, Colin. Speak to you next time. You've been listening to Central Station. If you found this discussion helpful and you'd like to know more about Richard's courses, then you can get in touch by visiting the website, learnimplementshare.com, or you can send Richard an email, richard at learnimplementshare.com. And to hear more interviews with educators making a positive difference, make sure you subscribe to Central Station on your favourite podcast app. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. This podcast is brought to you by Central. To find out more, visit the website, Central. .com.au. I'm Colin Klupik. Until next time, bye for now.